Ignaz Semmelweis was a Hungarian physician working at the Vienna General Hospital in the 1840s. His tasks included inspections, teaching, and record keeping. And at the time, the hospital in Vienna had a terrible reputation uh, for a, with a 10% death rate among new mothers. Think about that. A 10% death rate. If, you, if you're going in for a routine to, to have a baby, a normal birth, there is a 10% chance you would die in that hospital in the 1840s. Another nearby hospital only had a 4% death rate, halved, and so Semmelweis set out to pinpoint what exactly was causing the spread of the fever. And he noticed, as he studied the hospitals and the systems of the hospital, he noticed that at the Vienna General Hospital, medical students went from doing autopsies on cadavers immediately into assisting in the delivery rooms. And though he didn't know anything about germs, he assumed that maybe it was a lack of cleanliness causing unnecessary deaths. And so he had the doctors and the midwives do something very, very simple. The washing of their hands. He just had them wash their hands and disinfect them as they went from the autopsy rooms into the birthing rooms. And suddenly that death rate that was at 10% went down to about 1% or 2%. Now washing of the hands seems straightforward enough. In, but the news of washing of the hands didn't go over well in the rest of Europe. Many of the doctors and the professional community were offended that this Semmelweis saw them as dirty, and their egos led them to believe that it couldn't be their uncleanliness that caused disease. And because Semmelweis never published an official report on why sanitation was life-saving, the medical world completely rejected him and viewed him as an embarrassment. Now, it's interesting to see what happens to this man. The rejection led him to alcoholism, depression, and isolation. He penned several letters lashing out at all his critics, noting that the doctors who rejected his work were irresponsible murderers and ignoramuses. And toward the end of his life, they actually committed him into an insane asylum for the crazy idea of washing your hands after touching dead people. He was committed to a mental asylum where he, was, he died forgotten by his peers. Only decades later, as germ theory emerged with the likes of Louis Pasteur and Lister, uh, only decades after his death was it proved that sanitation, Semmelweis's idea, actually saved lives. I actually got that story from a website where I was looking at um, 10 scientific advances that were the people who had these scientific advances were deemed crazy in their times. And I don't need to go through all 10 of them. You, we have the example of Semmelweis this morning. But why do I tell this story? Well, as German philosopher Arthur Schopenhauer observed, all truth passes through three phases three stages. First, it is ridiculed. Secondly, it is violently opposed. Third, it is accepted as being self-evident. In Acts chapter 26, we see the Apostle Paul passing through these first two stages with those who he is delivered to be in front of and having to give an account of his life. 
And he's seeking, in this chapter after 26, he's seeking to press those who are hearing him not into the ridicule or the violent stage, but into that surge stage of accepting what he is saying as true. Just uh, if, you, if you go in your Bible, Acts chapter 25, Acts chapter 26, uh, that's where we're going to be this morning. And we're going to see the Apostle Paul as he's on trial, whether he is crazy or whether he is actually convinced of the truth. So turn with me to Acts chapter 25. And I'm, I'm not going to read Acts chapter 25. Let me catch you up to where we are in the story, particularly if you're visiting here. We're going through uh, the book of Acts. We've been, we've been going from chapter 1. We're now in chapter 26. And in, in, in this last section of the book of Acts that started about chapter 20, uh, the apostle Paul has, was convinced, convinced and convicted by the Holy Spirit that he must go to the city of Jerusalem. And all he knew, all the Holy Spirit was telling him, was that suffering and imprisonment awaited him there. And so he gets to Jerusalem, and within 12 days, a lot of action happens. In 12 days, he, he actually he, he just goes to the temple. He's going to worship with the temple with some of his Jewish compatriots. And as he's there, false slander and accusation come out against him, and suddenly a whole riot breaks out. And so what they do is, uh, in order to, st to still the riot, they arrest uh, this man, uh, this uh, this. Um, this tribute called, uh, tribune called uh, Claudius Lysias, he arrests the Apostle Paul, but he arrests him in such a way just to save him from the crowd. Just as it would go on very quickly, there's an assassination attempt against the Apostle Paul as he, he's brought in front of the Jewish council. They, they ask him to bring him the next day so that they might kill him. And so Claudius Lysias, this, this man who's uh, protecting Paul in a sense, even though he's not, the, he's not, he, he's, he's not a perfect man, but he's protector at this time. He moves Paul to Caesarea, uh, and, and kind of where the, 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 the county seat, I don't know what you call that, but like the provincial capital of that region. And Paul immediately, within 12 days, has his hearing in front of the governor of Judea. And initially, uh, that hearer hears him, and ultimately, they can't come up with any charges against the Apostle Paul, but what happens is he goes from 12 days of complete action, of complete you know, hearing confirmation of what the Holy Spirit has said, that when he gets to Jerusalem, there'll be suffering and imprisonment and chains. Suddenly now, he's in prison now for two years. And this, this, uh, this governor, Felix, goes and listens to him. He's interested in what Paul has to say about Jesus, but in fact, actually just keeps him under chains, under wraps for two years. And it basically tells us he's, he's hoping that Paul will just give him a bribe to get out of jail. But where we pick up in Acts chapter 25, uh, Felix now, that governor, his term has ended, and there's a new governor, his name is Festus, who now, uh, who now is over Paul. Immediately as Festus comes into his office, he's immediately petitioned by the Jewish leaders once again to move Paul back to Jerusalem so that they can carry out his assa their assassination plot against him. But Festus, the new governor, to his credit, goes and immediately questions Paul. I mean, the thing is, none of these guys have brought any formal charges against Paul. None of them have made a charge that sticks. No one is willing to testify against him in a way that actually has evidence and testimony. And so Festus goes, he doesn't immediately grant their request, but he questions Paul himself to determine what should be done. And Paul knows that this is all just a huge setup. He knows the Jewish leaders are trying to get Festus to take Paul back to Jerusalem where there's danger. And so Paul does this. 
Um, Paul, it says, standing before Caesar's tribunal, or Paul said, sorry, Acts 25, verse 10, Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where, where I ought to be tried. To, to the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I'm a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there's nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. And Festus, when he had confirmed this with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed. To Caesar you shall go. Soon after Paul makes his appeal to Caesar, Festus is visited by the king over the region, a man named King Agrippa. He's actually Agrippa II. He came with his wife, actually he came with his, yeah, his wife Bernice. And Festus explains to Agrippa the predicament he was in. Paul had appealed to Caesar, and to Caesar he must be sent. However, it could be easily seen that all the charges the Jewish people were making against him were, were, were groundless. And Agrippa was very interested in Paul's case because he'd worked very closely with the Jewish leaders. In fact, when Agrippa had first come to Judea, Agrippa was actually in charge of, he was a superintendent of the temple. So he actually was the one who, uh, during those years, would have installed the high priest and managed the temple's funds. So he worked very closely with the Jewish leaders. And so Agrippa knew of the customs of the Jews and had very much interest in them. So when he hears about this controversy about the Apostle Paul, Agrippa's really interested to hear what Paul has to say. And now he's been promoted to the rank of the king of the larger regions, but he still maintains that interest. And so it's here before Agrippa that the Apostle Paul gives his clearest defense, as he has in any of these trials, over what Jesus has done in his life. Remember last week we talked about, uh, last week one of the big ideas we talked about last week was, the world will accuse Christians, they will accuse us, the world will at times accuse us according to our works. Right? They, 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 they want to trip us up in our ethics and in, in the way that we conduct our lives and our business. And the world will, will seek to accuse us over our works. But what I said last week was, when you're being on trial or accused or someone's making an you know, accusation against you because they, they've said you're not acting ethically or, or they're accusing you about your deeds, I said last week, don't just jump right to Jesus, right? That there's a time and a place for defending Christ and that there is a time to show this is how I've conducted myself ethically. Remember, Paul went up in front of them and said, my conscience is completely clear before God and before man. This is how I conducted myself. And so we talked last week about, you know, it's not always the time when, if you had an employee, a, a coworker who went to your boss and said, hey, you know, so-and-so is not, is not working ethically or so-and-so is not working hard. That's not the time to suddenly pull out the Jesus card, right? That's the time to demonstrate to your boss and to the rest of the employees that you are a good and ethical worker. But our hope is that we get to the point that even after having received slander, and even, having after been, even after having been on the receiving end of such slander, the point is, the hope is, that we get to the point where we're able to make that defense of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. And that's what Paul gets to do today in front of Agrippa. And notice how skillfully Paul shares. I want to go very quickly over this because... We have a person today who's going to be able to also share to you what Jesus has done in his own life. So in Acts chapter 6, Paul's testimony before Agrippa. First, Paul shares who he was before Christ. 
I mean, this is a very easy outline to us because Paul's doing what, what many, of, uh, many of you guys in here have been trained actually to do. Some of your campus ministries or even as part of our, our church discipleship, we train you how to, to share your story. And this is basically what Paul does. He talks about who he was before knowing Christ, talks about how Christ calls him, and he talks about what, he, what Christ has done after he's come to know him. And so first Paul shares who he was before Christ. He says to Agrippa, he says, I consider myself fortunate that it's before you, King Agrippa, that I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. And so he shares respectfully to King Agrippa. He says, my manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation in, in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And Paul, in other places, as he's making his defense, he goes to his religious background, he goes to his family background, he goes to his national background, and he says, look, I was advancing in Judaism beyond even that of my contemporaries. I was being trained. I moved to Jerusalem when I was six years old. I was trained under Gamaliel, the, the, that most famous of the Jewish rabbis. And Paul, Paul, again and again and again through all these chapters, goes back and says, look, I was a good Jewish boy, and I was growing up, and I was, I was the ideal citizen of this nation. I was the ideal uh, practitioner of this religion. That's who I was. And he goes on to talk about even his zeal, he says, and now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promises made by to God, in my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And it's for this hope that I'm accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? And again, Paul stresses, like I am a person who has steeped in the promises God has made to our people. God promised us that, that he would, for example, God promised David that, that his throne would endure forever. And so I'm, I'm part of those promises of waiting for that eternal kingdom. And why should that be a strange thing, O king? You know yourself all of these promises. He then speaks to his zeal in who he was before Christ. He says in Acts 26, verse 9, I myself was convinced I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. He goes on to explain, not only was I a good Jewish boy, but when I first was confronted by the claims of who Jesus is and what he has done, I opposed them. I opposed it even violently because I knew that, that no one who's a good Jew could, could make the claim that here this man is in fact what he was claiming to be, which was Jesus made amazing and astounding claims about himself. Jesus made claims that he was to be the judge of the living and the dead. Jesus made claims that when, that when Jesus forgave a man his sins, that, that God himself had forgiven a man of his sins. And they said against Jesus, what kind of man is this? Only God can, 
can forgive sins. Jesus did things as he, was, as he did his miraculous works to point to himself as God himself. When he calmed the seas, his disciples fell down at his feet and worshipped him. There were times throughout Jesus' ministry when he would say things like, you believe in Abraham. I am the God of the living. I am the God of the living and the dead. He, he was taking these claims of deity and applying them to himself. And that is why Paul raged against Jesus. Because he had been trained from the moment he was a little boy and his parents taught him the Shema of Deuteronomy 6.6. Hear, O Israel, our Lord is God, the God our, our, our Lord is one. He had been taught from a little boy that we are not to ascribe deity to a man. And that would be blasphemous. And so when you have these Christians now worshiping this Christ, this Jesus as Son of God, Son of Man, Paul violently opposed them and he even gave his vote as they were putting them to death. Paul speaks of his former life, of who he was against Christ. He speaks about how he opposed Jesus, but also look at this. He confesses his rage. So Paul's not just saying, this is who I was, and when I first heard about Jesus, he also then confesses, I did this in my fury. I was a violent, wicked man. As Paul grew even, as you read through Paul's epistles and he understands it, he comes to the point near his end of the ministry, he says, here's a trustworthy saying, I'm the worst of sinners because I violently hated and opposed Jesus' purposes in this world. And so he's, he's given them a, a, a picture of who he was before Christ. I was a religious man, but I was a violent man. I was a devout man, but I was a furious man. And some of you have certain similar testimonies of when you first heard of the gospel of Christ. Of how the God, I mean, I, I, I've shared a testimony. I was horrific. Some of you guys have heard the story of my first friend who ever shared the gospel with me. He, I was in junior high school, and he invited me to a Petra concert. You guys remember Petra? Nobody here, guys, are, all the young people are like, what? Who? So he invited me to a rock and roll concert, and I'm in grade 7, and I've never been to a rock and roll concert by myself before. So I'm like, yeah, sure, I'll go to a concert. So I go to this concert, and the music was good, and it was loud, and it was fun, and we were dancing, we were, you know, having fun. And then afterward, they gave a thing where it's like, uh, would you like to come backstage and meet the band? And I'm like, grade seven or grade eight. So I'm like, yeah, that sounds cool. So I'll go in and meet the band. And then I went backstage, and I thought we were just going to get an autograph or something. But no, we stayed there for a half hour as these guys preached to us. And on Monday morning, I was so furious that my friend had bait and switched me. That on Monday morning, when I saw my friend walking toward me in the hallway, I immediately walked the other direction. I never even had one conversation. I never spoke to that friend again. Ever. When I saw him for the next couple weeks, I just went the other direction until he got the point. I was furious. I, later, after I becoming a Christian, I actually called him up and, and talked to his mom. He was away at college. And I said, I, I don't know if I, you can pass this message on to him, but tell him thank you. That's what, I, that's what I told him. I still have never talked to him personally, but at least got to tell his mom thanks. But Paul shares, I was a good Jewish boy, but I was filled with anger and rage against these deluded Christians. 
Second, Paul shares how Jesus called him. And this is a story, I'm not going to take too much time here, because this is a story we've heard time and time. This is the fourth time, I believe, in the book of Acts where he shares this story. But he says, in this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone all around me and those who journeyed with me. And when I had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And think about this. Paul saying, how can I? I'm not kicking against you, God. I've lived all my life devoutly following your promises and holding on to them so devoutly that I was persecuting these people. Who are you, Lord? I, I, I can't see any way that I've been kicking against you. And then the Lord says to him, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And so Paul is telling to grip a look. I wasn't, I wasn't like... I wasn't, a, I, wasn't in a seek, I wasn't seeking Jesus. I was seeking Christians to kill. And yet Jesus revealed himself to me. He, he, he revealed himself to me. And then he called me. He said to me in verse 16, Paul goes on, Rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a service, servant and witness to the things which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you. To open their eyes so that they might turn from darkness and light, or from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And so Paul's just saying, like, look, I was not looking for Jesus. Jesus suddenly, I'm walking to go kill Christians, and Jesus opened up heaven and revealed himself to me, and then he called me and he says, This is the reason, this is the purpose for which I've prepared you, this is the ministry to which I have called you. And notice that as he shares his testimony, and this is just for our Christians here, notice that as he shares his testimony here, he doesn't, go, he doesn't go super in hard with the gospel, but what he does is he pulls out the breadcrumbs, right? He, he doesn't go full and hard of explaining all the mechanisms of salvation. He doesn't go full and hard of explaining all. He doesn't do what we did last week. Remember last week he was preaching. He was preaching to, Fe to Felix last week when he talked to him about righteousness that he did not possess, and he talked to him about self-control, right, that, that he could not procure, and he talked to him about a judgment that he could not escape from. That was direct preaching, man, right? But here, he's just saying, like, this is what Jesus called me to do. He called me to proclaim that there is a message of hope. There's a message where you can be taken from this kingdom of darkness and brought into this kingdom of light. There's a message where we, who are sinners before a holy God, can receive forgiveness of sins. There is a message of, of life in Christ that I've been sent to proclaim. And the implication is here, Agrippa. Here, here, Agrippa, and even more here. Everyone who hears this and reads this in years and generations to come, this is the hope that we have in Christ. To turn, to be turned, to be delivered, and to be brought into this kingdom of life and to be set apart, to be placed at God's side through Jesus. And he gives that hope and that vision even as he's sharing his testimony to Agrippa. And then third, Paul shares what Jesus is doing in him. And often like this is, that, that last one is where we stop our giving our testimony. We're like, this is what I was before Jesus met me, and then this is what Jesus did to reveal himself to me. But Paul goes on and says, this is now 
Agrippa, this is now what God is doing in me. He says, therefore, O King Agrippa, I I wasn't disobedient to the heavenly vision, but I declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me, but to this day, I have had the help that comes from God. I love that testimony. He asked Paul, what is God doing in you, Paul? And first he says, he's, he's given me the obedience of faith. He, when, I, when I followed Jesus, this, this consumed my whole life. It wasn't because of what I have done. It's what God has done in me that he called me for a purpose. He called me for a reason. And I could not help but to obey what he's called, what he's called me. And as I have obeyed Christ, he has been with me and helped me every step along the way. That is a testimony. Now that is a testimony. As I obeyed Christ, as I responded to his call and his call to ministry, as I responded to his call to salvation, and I could do nothing else, I could no longer kick against him, but as I was doing this and he called me, I have found that God has been with me every step of the way. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here today testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And this is where they stopped him. This is where they cut in. Because as we read in that quote before, all truth is first passes through the stage of ridicule, and second, it's violently opposed. And as he was still saying these things in his defense, Festus shouted out with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. This is the response. But Paul responds back to him. Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things. And to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, in such a short time, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. This is the power of the testimony of a saint of God. Last week we looked at the power of preaching the gospel, the power in the gospel of Paul preaching to Felix, that righteousness, that self-control, and that coming judgment. And yes, remember as he's preaching the gospel to Felix, what did Felix do? Felix trembled in front of him and shut him up and said, I can't take any more. But even here, Paul hasn't been so explicit in the gospel. He's just shared his testimony. And again, Festus now, Felix's successor, is saying, I can't hear any more of this. Paul says, he says to Paul, you're mad, you've lost your mind, and Paul makes the following defense. And there's four things, and then very quickly, first, in Paul's response, we see four things. First, we appeal Oh man, I can't even say this. I gotta change my, my, my statement here. We appeal to those who we hope would be reasonable with rational words. Now, because of the sinfulness of man's heart, 
Because sin has touched and tainted every part of our experience, people think we're rational. People think that we are reasonable. Like, like, I'm, not, I'm not talking about Christians. We, we all believe that our minds and our faculties work. We all believe that we'll look at evidence and data, and if you give me good evidence, I'll believe, but that's not the case. Right? Like, it's not the case that, that, that our, our reason is detached from our will. If you want to believe something, if you're desiring to believe something, you will believe things whether it's reasonable or not. But as we share the gospel with people, as we share the hope that we have with people, we follow what Christ, what, 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 what not Christ, what, what Paul is doing here. And making an appeal to people with rational, with calm words. Like, Paul, Paul's not saying I'm trying to manipulate you. Paul, Paul's actually just telling his story here. I called this once the subjective, objective, apologetic. What do I mean by that? What I mean by a subjective, objective apologetic is this. I mean that it's subjective in that Paul is saying, like, look, I know you weren't here. <laughs> I know you weren't there. Like, I know you weren't there, and so I know you're just trusting in my testimony of what happened. It's subjective in that sense, in the sense that it happened to me and to me alone. I was there on the road to Damascus. I saw the vision. I heard the voice. I, that, it's subjective in that sense. But at the same time, it's an objective reality. Paul's actually saying, look, there is no other way to interpret this fact. There's no other way to interpret that this actually, objectively happened. And if you, if you don't believe me about the vision, believe me about the changed life. Believe me that I formerly was a persecutor, and now I'm a proclaimer. Believe that. Something has happened here. And Paul says, yes, you weren't a part of it, so it's subjective unto me, but it's objective in saying, like, here I am making my defense of what has happened. Explain it some other way. Like, you can explain, if you ever, like, study apologetics, you can explain, you could explain away some of the visions of Jesus after, the, after his death by saying, these were people who hoped to see Jesus. You ever hear of people who lost a loved one? And they lost somebody they loved? And they, they still have that hope and that desire to see them. And so they, they, see, they see them at the shopping mall. Or they hear the voice, you know, in their home. The people who desire to see their loved ones, right? And so they, they start thinking that they see them in every place and hear them in every place. The Apostle Paul was not hoping to see Jesus, right? He, he was the last person. And so, Jesus, so Paul says, so Christ was pleased to reveal himself in me. Paul says, explain that change in my life. Second, we challenge people to look at the facts. He, he says as he's in front of Agrippa, he's saying, look, King Agrippa, you know these things. These things were not hidden. They were not done in a corner. You heard of Jesus. You heard of the disturbances he caused. You heard of the miracles that he has claimed that he has done. You, this all happened in front of you, Felix. Go back and examine the facts. Uh, sometimes as you're witnessing for Christ, it's not about having all the answers, but pointing people to where they can find answers and challenging, challenging their reluctance to actually examine the claims of Christianity. I, I was listening to a podcast this week. It was one of my favorite podcasts. It's an NBA podcast. Okay? Pastors, I don't just sit around like listening to sermons. I love the NBA. 
So I'm listening to an NBA podcast. And it's, the, it's, it's not during the season, right? So it's, it's, it's the off season. So they have a podcast in which they're like, we're not going to talk about basketball at all. We're just going to read these cards. It's like a game. I don't know what game it was called. I forget. But they're just reading these cards and having a conversation. And one of the cards was, if you could ask God anything, what would you ask him? And one of the guys says, and he's a guy who is very anti-religion. It's come through in a lot of the podcasts I've listened. And he just goes, ha, 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 like right away. And they say, he goes, what would I ask God? He goes, I would ask God why he's never showed up here. And he's never just said, showed up here, walked amongst us, and said, here I am, I'm God. And, and to, to, to the credit of one of these other guys on the podcast, and none of them claim to be, I never heard any of them profess faith in Christ, but one of them at least had the intellectual honesty to say, you realize that that's literally Christianity. And the guy said, what are you talking about? And like, he didn't know. And the first guy, who's not a believer, I don't think, he's never made a profession of, but he goes, that's, that's literally what the Christians say that Jesus did. Like, literally, they say, God, like, left heaven, came to earth, and said, here I am. And the first guy was like, really? <laughs> and it's like, yeah. And to me, I'm yelling at the radio. Like, I'm yelling at my, my phone going, man, just do a micro, like, tiny bit of, like, look into these things before you make these ridiculous claims. And I think we can do that as we're sharing the faith with others. I, I have supreme confidence in my God. I have supreme confidence in his revelation. I have supreme confidence in what he's done in Jesus. And so as you're sharing your testimony, as you're sharing your story with your classmates, your coworkers, and your neighbors and your friends, don't be afraid to challenge them. To say, man, have you looked into Jesus? Don't you think you would, you know, you've heard about a lot about Christianity from the media and from movies. Don't you think it would be good to like pick up the Bible and read it? See what the claims of Christianity are? And that's the third thing. Paul points Agrippa to the scriptures as the word of God. He says to Agrippa, King Agrippa, do you, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. I know that you, 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 you give assent to taking this book, these scriptures as the word of God. And so he says to Agrippa, all right, you, you, you're already halfway there. You, you already believe in the message of the prophets that God has revealed himself to us in the word. Now, now go and look at them and see what they say about the Messiah, about his, how he's to come, about how he was to be rejected, about how he was to die, and about how he was to be the first fruits, the, the, the king who will live forever. So challenge and point people to the scriptures as the word of God. This, this is the foundation. It's amazing how many times in the New Testament the apostles who were eyewitnesses to Jesus, who, who saw him, who ate with him, who drank with him after he rose from the dead, it's amazing how often those same apostles, the ones who were on the mountain with him when they saw his glory and they, 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 they heard the voice from heaven and everything just crumbled around them. It's amazing how they didn't just say, take our word for it. It's amazing how much those same apostles said, go back and see this in the scripture. Because that's the prophetic word made sure. That's the authoritative word from God. That's the revelation that's been passed down through the generations. Trust in this book as the word of God and see how it points you to our Savior. And finally, we aid to persuade many that Christ is Lord. It's one of my favorite lines in the Bible. 
Agrippa says to Paul, after hearing this convincing uh, proclamation of Paul's story, Agrippa says, in such a short time would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul says, I, look, I don't care. Short, long, whatever, I would not only that you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am. Listen, if you're here today, you're not a Christian. We are here to persuade you. Right? We are here to compel you. We are here to point you to the word of God. We are here to, to, to challenge you to look into the claims of Jesus. So we, that's, that's why we're glad you're here. But I'll tell you this, we are not here to manipulate you. We're not here to manipulate you. I don't, I don't want to just form an environment where I'm just tugging at your emotions and tugging at your heartstrings. I, 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 want, I want you to, be, to understand the claims that Christianity is making about our sin and about the holiness of God and about what God has done for us in Christ to do so, to, to save people like us for himself. I don't believe the gospel needs manipulation for it to be persuasive. And I pray that if you're here today and you do not know Christ, I pray that today you hear this challenge and I pray that you will hear this appeal. Look even at the scripture and what it says about yourself. The scripture says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The, the scripture says that for those who have no law, the conscience is a law unto themselves. So what that means is that, that, that you have a standard, you have a, a conscience in your life, and even if you haven't taken the word of God as authoritative, you know that you have violated even your own standard of your, of your conscience. You know that as much as you present to people your own righteousness, you also know your own righteousness is a filthy rag in front of a holy God. And, and I, I convince you that there's two paths. There's the path of religion that Paul was on, that, I, that, that he said he was on, and that, that you know, this path of, of looking to your own righteousness to save you. And there's the path of hearing the gospel of Christ that God has done in Jesus what you could not have done in yourself. He has provided for you a righteousness that comes from him that is not your own, but is a gift of God by grace to be received by faith. And if those words meant not too much for you yet, I pray that today the Spirit is putting on your heart a compulsion to look into, not to be manipulated, but to be persuaded. That's our testimony. That's our challenge. That's our hope, is that we get the opportunity. I pray for you. I pray, Lord Jesus, I pray right now for every single one who's here who names the name of Christ. I pray that you will give them and grant them opportunity this week to have multiple occasions this week where they are able to share the hope that they have in Christ. They're able to share their story of who they were before, of how you called them and what you're doing in their life right now. I pray that they do it not in a manipulative way, but in one that points people to the facts and points people to your word. Amen, Lord. We pray these things in your name. Amen. We've got someone here today who I'm going to invite him up to do that. And Cebu, I know we've got to pray for Cebu. He's an introverted guy, but we're going to pray that the Spirit gives you boldness. All right, Sibu is a brother. He's from a country in South Africa called Swaziland. Came to Canada about a month ago. First week, two months, 
The first week you were here at the church, he came up to me and said, do you do baptism at this church? And so, Sibu, I'd like to give you an opportunity to share a bit of your story. Hi, everyone. Um, my name is Sibu from Swaziland. Um, I grew up in a Christian family. They forced me to actually go to church. It wasn't because I wanted to. Um, after finishing high school, I went to university, and I basically stopped going to church. I thought that I didn't need God in my life, and I lived my life the way that I wanted to live, but I wasn't happy. I was missing something. I was empty. I wasn't fulfilled. Then about two years ago, I, after reading the word of God, God revealed himself through his word. He showed me who I was, that I was a sinner, I was a wretched man, I was walking in darkness, and he brought me to his light, he saved my life. I'd like to thank him for sending his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for my sins. I also would like to thank my parents for actually forcing me to go to church, and I would uh, like to thank OCBC for welcoming me with open and uh, loving arms. I ask that you pray for me to continue to grow in Christ, to be committed, to be faithful and obedient. Thank you. Amen. Awesome. Thank you.